It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome, Money Guy listeners. I'm your host, Brian Preston, sitting here with Bo Hansen. And um, once again, I know it's not Friday. It's actually the start of a brand new fresh week. It's a Monday. And um, the excuse uh, that I'm going to give you for that is that um, I actually have been gone for the last 10 days. And Bo's looking at me now because I, I did I had a great opportunity to go out. We have here in Henry County, down here on the south side of Atlanta, where, where we broadcast out of, we have we don't have year-round schools, but we do have uh, an extended calendar that only allows us to take off from the end of May through August is when our our kids are out of school. So because we have that extended you know that short um, summer, we have what extended periods throughout the year where we get a week off, and we had our fall break last week. So this town pretty much shuts down whenever there's a fall break, and I was able to go on a Disney cruise and then go down to Disney Park. So I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into that in just a second. But let me give you kind of the, the background. We might have some brand new listeners tuning in. This is The Money Guy Show. You can go check us out at money-guy.com. You can also write the show at brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. And what we're going to be talking about today, I'm going to close out the show with the, the Disney discussion, just because I know a lot of you guys get in here for the meat and potatoes of um, the numbers as well as financial talk. And then the rest of you, you know, might want to know a little bit more, delve into what I've got going on in my personal life. And I kind of let you open the curtains up a little bit to share some of that information with you. We'll do that at the end of the show so we don't upset those that are only here for the meat and the potatoes. So what we're going to be talking about, I guess, on the, the meat of the stuff is America, American exceptionalism. I hear that term a lot. Um, when you're, you're talking about talk radio, I've even, from a historical standpoint, I can remember, uh, you know, being a child during the Reagan era, and, and you hear about President Reagan was talking about the shiny city, uh, the shiny, you know, house on the, on the top of a hill or the shiny city on top of a hill. Those are references that all kind of fall back to American exceptionalism. And the thing is, is that I don't think a lot of our listeners, and I'm guilty of this, being a, a, a child of the 70s, I was born in the early 70s, is that I, th- I think it's like a lot of things in life, is that we we just take for granted our history. And when we hear so many things like American exceptionalism, and, and we're like, oh, that's a, that's a great concept, but, you know, is that propaganda? Or is America different? What You know, is it great? Bo, you know, I'll put you on the spot right here. People from your generation, uh, do you hear the term American exceptionalism? Yeah, it's definitely um, it's something that we've heard. I don't, I can't remember studying it necessarily in any of my classes, but I know it's the term that we've heard. But I doubt that we understand it kind of the same way that you understand it. And and kind of the big reason I wanted to talk about this is that when I went on this vacation, uh, one of the things, especially I've been on cruises in the past, and I, Disney cruises, by the way, are a lot different than other cruises is that when I've gone on cruises in the past, I've always been able to take a book with me to read and had had plenty of time to read the book. So the book I took this time was a book title, titled Free to Choose, a personal statement written by Milton Friedman and his wife Rose Friedman. And, you know, Milton has been getting a lot of... He passed away, unfortunately, a few years back, but he's been getting a lot of attention recently, or at least his, his writings have, as well as some of his interviews. I, you, you can't help... 
but go on YouTube and see some of Milton Friedman's discussions with Donahue and then others, and you can see what a, just a brilliant guy this guy was. So I've gone out and purchased this book, and it has truly been amazing to me to, to kind of see how time, as much as we think the world is different, how much things are really the same. Uh, because the, the struggles, this book was originally published back in the late 70s, early 80s, the, the copyrights 1979, 1980. So, you know, that, that was right there during the Carter administration where we had all kind of world things going on over in the Middle East. Plus, we had a, a struggling economy, and it, it really shows you how things are, are still very similar. So I took this book on vacation, planning on reading it, and and I, I'll tell you, I'm only about four chapters into it because you go on a Disney cruise, they don't give you much downtime. I mean, it's not really a vacation. It's more of an event. But I have gotten far enough into this book that I, I just have been driven that I need to share it with you. It's because when I think about American exceptionalism, it kind of ties into what this book, the concepts this book talks about. Because I've, I've shared with you guys in the last few podcasts that I've kind of been down a little bit. There's been, a, I don't want to say depression, but it's definitely, I've had an impact on my mood and my optimism about the way things are. And I think the reason I feel that way is that I've always been a square. I mean, a lot of people think that's a negative thing when to be considered square. But I'm kind of like Huey Lewis when I feel like it's hip to be square. Where I've always been a, a. Do you even know who Huey Lewis is, Bo? That was a song, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know how I know that was a song? Yeah. Because isn't that from like Back to the Future? Is is yeah, it that? You know, Huey Lewis is kind of you know he's synonymous with the whole Back to the Future franchise. But but the whole thing is is that I've always taken great pride and then I follow the rules. I've always felt like kind of my moral fiber is if I follow the rules and do exactly what I'm supposed to, the rewards will be there for me. And I think a lot of people go by that. They, they feel like if they follow the rules and they do things just the way they're supposed to, it's all going to work out. And that, and that can tie into, as a child, you know, if you make your bed every day and, and you, 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 know, you do what you're supposed to, you, you'll, you get good grades in school, you're going to be a good kid. You know, and I always kind of, you know, I never wanted to disappoint my parents, so I lived under that rule when I was a kid. I was, I was probably what you consider a good kid. Sure, there was some mischief. You know that I, you know, I think all kids, even good kids, get into trouble. But it's it's extended into my professional and business life as well as adult life too. Is that I, you know, uh, I I just I've never been one of those guys that overlapped women when I was dating and in, in college, and then I don't cheat on my taxes, and I've always tried to to really do things right. And I feel like to a large degree it worked. You know, being square has paid off to a degree. Is that. You know, I'm an entrepreneur, small business owner. I treat people like I want to be treated, the golden rule, and, and it's kind of paid off for me. But recently, there has been a feeling of change on that. And that feeling of change has been that the system is changing on me finally when I've reached that, that carrot that we all work towards. You know, I, I finally have reached my, some of my peak earning years. I don't think I'm completely at the top of my, where I'm going to be in life, but I do feel like I've, I finally have reached that point where I'm starting to make good money. I'm saving a good bit, you know, and being able to reach a lot of those life goals. But as, as I'm reaching these goals and, and, and have been living under all these rules, I feel like the, the kind of the carrot's been moved from me a little bit because we're, you can't help but turn on the news and hear that there's, you know, we're going to take away deductions. We're going to, you know, raise taxes. We're going to, you know, limit these type of things. It seems like every time I turn around, the, the rules are being changed 
to where if you follow the rules, you kind of be punished. It's the same thing. I, there was a proposal that you heard about on you know on a, a, a lot of the the TV shows and everything is that they were going to do something dramatic. You can't help but look at the mortgage stuff and see. It seems like if you're behind on your bills and you're not doing everything you're supposed to, there's all kind of programs and options for you to get fixed and get straightened out. And meanwhile, if you if you follow the rules, if you really you know did everything you could to keep your your mortgage straight there's really no help for you you know and that, that that kind of stuff weighs heavily on you that you feel like the system's changing so this book from Milton Friedman could not be any more timely than than what we're talking about now but Bo, do you, did I, did I put that right cuz I'm trying to be very careful with today's podcast to make sure this doesn't come off as too negative. But I'm just trying to explain to people a kind of a general feeling I've been having. And I think a lot of people who are entrepreneurs, small business owners, self-made individuals have kind of been feeling too, is that they work and they do all this. And then all of a sudden, hey, time out. We're going to change the rules on you, make it harder for you. Uh, you know, and believe me, I'm a charitable guy. I'm on a lot of bow picks on me constantly because I'm on charitable boards. Uh, you know, I represent the local school system, which, by the way, you don't go on the school board to make a lot of money. I can assure you of that. So I don't want anybody to send me hate mail saying, Brian, you're just that greedy, capitalistic guy who's making this money, but you're sticking it to the little... No, I, I, I think charity and being a good person go hand in hand and just because you, you the gifts that you're blessed with you should share but it should be of a personal choice it's not something that should be mandated because when things are mandated sometimes they lose their intent but I, i'm sorry but i asked you a question and then i went on to my own little no i don't think sidebar. i don't think it's too negative i think probably a lot of our listeners feel the same way right now and they're, they're kind of experiencing these same emotions so i want to kind of i've you know i went to the old resource of wikipedia and um, found, you know, typed in, you can type in anything on, on, you know, on Wikipedia. It doesn't mean it's always, you have to, the only thing I would say about Wikipedia is you have to be careful because, you know, it's, it's, it's basically information that's been put out there by the public. So you, you always have to think about it in those terms to know that it might not be, you know, until it has a footnote on it, something that, you, you know, you can go back and put your hands on. Just know that Wikipedia, but still it's a great resource to go quickly um, find information. So I typed in American exceptionalism on Wikipedia. And what it has at the very top of the Wikipedia page, it says, American exceptionalism is the worldview that the United States occupies a special role among the nations of the world in terms of its national ethos, political and religious institutions, and it being built by immigrants. And then you turn to page two. If you print it out, it's page two, I should say. A key theme is the claim that the United States and its people different differ from other nations, at least on a historical basis, as an association of people who came from numerous places throughout the world but who hold a common bond in standing for certain self-evident truths like freedom, inalienable natural and human rights, democracy, republicanism, the rule of law, civil liberty, civic virtue, the common good, fair play, private property, and constitutional government. So that type of stuff is you read that, and not that I want to have a history lesson, but when you're reading this Milton Friedman book, you can't help but, but think that, well, let's go back to the founding of this country. What makes this country so unique? And, and Milton Friedman, in his intro, talks about it beautifully. It says, the, you know, he talks about the miracle of how this country was founded and the uniqueness 
of the period, the things that were going on when this when the revolution for the United States between Great Britain and, and the United States was going on at the time, there were some other crazy things going on out there in the world of philosophies. And there was some, some literature that was published during that period that was incredibly, incredibly life-changing for all of us. We wouldn't have some of the opportunities we have. So what I want to do is you'll feel better, bear with me. I'm going to read you the intro just the page of the intro from Free to Choose, that, that Milton Friedman book. And, and I want you to think about this in terms, this was written back in the late 70s, early 80s when this book was published. And this is, this is the intro. It says, Ever since the first settlement of Europeans in the New World, America has been a magnet for people seeking adventure, fleeing from tyranny, tyranny, or simply trying to make a better life for themselves and their children. An initial trickle swelled after the American Revolution and the establishment of the United States of America and became a flood in the 19th century when millions of people streamed across the Atlantic and a smaller number across the Pacific, driven by misery and tyranny and attracted by the promise of freedom and affluence. When they arrived, they did not find streets paved with gold. They did not find an easy life. They did find freedom and an opportunity to make the most of their talents through hard work Ingenuity, thrift, and luck, most of them succeeded in realizing enough of their hopes and dreams to encourage friends and relatives to join them. The story of the United States is the story of an economic miracle and a political miracle that was made possible by the translation into practice of two sets of ideas, both by a curious coincidence formulated in documents published in the exact same year, 1776. So, this next thing, and I've talked about this book before, and actually even read parts of it myself. It's pretty heavy reading because this guy is so smart. But it is amazing the timing of how all this went down. So let me jump back into the intro. One set of ideas was embodied in The Wealth of Nations, the masterpiece that established the, the Scotsman Adam Smith as the father, father of modern economics. It analyzed the way in which a market system could combine the freedom of individuals to pursue their own objectives with the extensive cooperation and collaboration needed in the economic field to produce our food, our clothing, our housing. Adam Smith's key insight was that both parties to an exchange can benefit and that so long as cooperation is strictly voluntary, that's a key word, key statement I should say, so long as cooperation is strictly voluntary, meaning that it's not mandated, it's, this is something two people get to come into a transaction by their own free will. No exchange will take place unless both parties do benefit. No external force, no coercion, no violation of freedom is necessary to produce cooperation among individuals, all of whom can benefit. That is why, as Adam Smith put it, an individual who intends only his own gain is led by an invisible hand to promote an end, which was no part of his intention. That invisible hand is the key part. When people come in and they negotiate, just because of they're each trying to benefit, that, that invisible hand is the thing that comes in, and you don't even realize you're part of the your cog in the system that's making the world a better place. It really is an amazing thing as you get into this. So let me jump back into to where I was. Nor is it always the worst for the society that it was no part of it, meaning that they don't realize that they're part of this bigger thing that's going on. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. I have never known much good done by those who affected to trade for the public good. 
The second set of ideas was embodied in the Declaration of Independence, drafted by Thomas Jefferson to express the general sense of his fellow countrymen. It proclaimed a new nation, the first in his history established on the principles that every person is entitled to pursue, pursue his own values. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the thing that struck me as I'm reading this intro is, wow, do you realize how it really was a miracle that at the time that America was gaining its freedom, that this brand new set of ideas comes about that we all take for granted. I, you know, this whole thing of being able to control your own destiny. If you go back and look at history, guys, this is a, a miracle because most civilization, if you look at man since we've been on this planet, most of the time you're under a ruler of some type. You're under some type of authoritative figure through kings, you know, serfdoms, and, and all kind of other things that are out there. That's the historical norm. This thought that we can all represent ourselves and our interests is really is an amazing thing. And I, it makes me wonder, if Wealth of Nations wasn't published in 1776, was America... Because remember, a lot of people don't realize, if you go look at history, George Washington was actually offered to become king of the United States. But only because of George Washington being who he was is that he didn't want to be king. He wanted this to be a country that was ruled by its people, where in eight years, you know, or that, that's the period that he, that he took off, that he could go back in and just slip into being a normal person within society. I, I just, I look back, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm a dork, a history buff, I'm just amazed at the selfishness of, of, of those things. Because you think about it, if somebody came to you, you lead this great rebellion, you take over the country, you know, your, your government is now your head of the, the, the new American government, the United States of America, and the people come to you and they, they want you to be the, the, the new king. Because you know, that's what everybody's used to. They're used to having a king over in you know, Great Britain. They're used to you know, having some type of you know, authoritarian figure out there. And then George Washington having the ability to say, no, I want, to, I want this to be normal. I want this to be a country of the people. It really was a miracle. I mean, that, that truly is an amazing thing. So I, I wanted to, you know, as you can tell, I've gotten excited. I want to challenge you to go read this book, too. I'm going to even have Bo put up a link. I will go ahead and tell you, I'm going to tell him to use Amazon. We do get a little bit off of something if you buy through the Amazon site. Um, I don't figure most of you will care, but in full disclosure, I want to tell you that's not why I'm recommending the book, but I felt like I would at least tell you we're going to put up a link for you. If you want to benefit the show, feel free to help us out. Um, but, I'm, I, I, you know, Bo, don't worry. I, I thought about either buying you another copy or just, you know, I'll try to read this as quickly as possible. But I really do want you to get a part of this as well. Uh, I thought about... Because this invisible hand concept that you hear talked about, you know, the, the biggest thing I can remember, Bo, you weren't around for this, so I'll pick on you because of your, your age, but the Cold War. If you remember, it was all through childhood, uh, as I was growing up in my teenage years and everything else was the Cold War. You know, it was us against the Soviet Union. And you, you think about, I, I think about at least, you know, how do you, let's give some examples of how free markets are truly amazing. And one of the black eyes for America 
is agriculture and the fact that we had slavery here in the United States. And I thought it was very interesting that when Milton Friedman talks about, if you need an example of the power of freedom, he says it's most dramatically, you know, kind of the example that, that gives the best uh, showing of how powerful a free market is, is agriculture. And he goes on to talk about that the most rapid growth came after slavery was abolished. So here we are, we have this black eye on our country. But as soon as we abolished slavery, we, you know, people had to still produce. So they had to get creative. And I, I think that's, that creativity is kind of what sums up us Americans and what has partially tied into that American exceptionalism is that we have had a lot of ingenuity, a lot of development and other things that have happened. And it's amazing to me is because you think about there was a great stat. Let's see if I can't remember if I highlighted it in here. It says, when the Declaration of Independence was enacted, fewer than 3 million people of European and African origin occupied the narrow fringe along the eastern, eastern coast. Agriculture was the main economic activity. It took 19 out of 20 workers to feed the country's inhabitants and to provide a surplus for export in exchange for foreign goods. Today, now remember this was written in the 70s and 80s, so our population's bigger, a lot bigger. Today, it takes fewer than one out of 20 workers to feed the 220 inhabitants and provide a surplus that makes the United States the largest single exporter of food in the world. And, you know, it says, what produced this miracle clearly not central direction by government, nations like Russia and its satellites, mainland China, Yugoslavia, and India that today rely on central direction employ from one quarter to one half of their workers in agriculture, yet frequently rely on U.S. agriculture to avoid mass starvation. That, that's amazing to me. If, if you think about that, and I flipped over to the, to the next page, it starts, starts talking about government, because this is, we were so effective with agriculture, with, with the innovation, and people realizing, you know, what they go take a chance on, coming up with a new technology, a new way of harvesting, a new way of planting, that the government had to get involved in, in the opposite way. And we still have this now, where the government started playing a major role in agriculture during and after the Great Depression of the 1930s. It acted primarily to restrict output in order to keep prices artificially high. So we were so successful that the government had to step in to, to kind of cap off the, the, to artificially try to control the prices, which has its own impact when you, when you do that. Um, this type of stuff, it's amazing to me. I even, then you, you fast forward and you talk about Russia. And one of the things I thought was very interesting is being a child of the Cold, era, Cold War era is that it was us against them, is that it talks about over in Russia during this period is that, and you can think about this and see what's kind of, because it's funny to look back with the spectrum of that this was 30 years ago that a lot of this stuff was talked about. And now we have the benefit of looking through the rearview mirror, if we have hindsight, is that it talks about how over in Russia is that their entire economy was really structured for people to try to free up to kind of have a quasi-free market under the table. It's just like they, that they have all this land that the government put aside for agriculture. But when you, you, when you were a farmer over in the Soviet Union, they would have this big land that you were supposed to harvest, but then they would also give you one to two acres that you could harvest for yourself to, for your own family's needs. And then you could also use any excesses from that one to two acres. You could sell it to your friends and neighbors in a quasi-open market. And what's very interesting to me is that the research shows that Milton Friedman that he cites in this book is that 
These small plots, the, the one acres that accounts for less than 1% of the land that the Soviet Union was using, that 1% of the agricultural land in the country was said to yield provide to, uh, nearly a third of the farm output in the Soviet Union. And why was that? They made more money doing that. Yeah, well, it's self-interest. I mean, that, it's that whole invisible hand. Is that, hey, I go work hard on the government's land. Uh, you know, what does it matter if I produce, you know, 10 bushels or 100 bushels? It's the government's land. But on this one acre or two acres, whatever I produce here, I get to keep. Where's the incentives? You're going to go work on what you get to keep. I mean, it's just human nature. That's what's a... And it also talks about, I thought this was in, interesting when, when you're looking at this, the, attractive, the attractiveness of different jobs in the Soviet, Soviet Union often depended on the opportunities they offer for extra-legal or illegal moonlighting, meaning that like a popular job over there in Russia would be to be a plumber. Because what would happen is, is that if you had, if you're plumbing, if you had trouble with your plumbing and your government housing, remember there's problems with that too, because if you lived in a government house, how likely are you to want to go plant landscaping around it if you know that you really don't own it because you don't have a self-interest in it? But think about this. Your plumbing gets messed up on your government house. The waiting line could be a month before you saw the government plumber. Well, the thing is, that government plumber that probably couldn't get to you for a month because you had to go through the system, probably at night would come over to your house if you gave him the right amount of money. A moonlight. And it's so funny, they had this closeted, under-the-table system that's going on. And that's what people, those were the best jobs to have, is jobs that gave you the opportunity to express your own personal services, to go out there and, and, and make money off of. We just take this for granted. That's what I'm telling you. I think as an American, sometimes we look and we take it for granted. Our opportunities have caused us to just kind of shellac over the fact that we really are blessed that we can do what we want to. And we also don't understand that sometimes the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I know people hate it when I say that. But it's always the unintended consequences that, that scare you. Now, I know a lot of you also are sitting out there and, and you're going, Brian, you got to have some government. Don't, don't be hating. And believe me, I'm part of government. I'm, like I told you, I'm on the local board of education for one of the biggest school systems in the state of Georgia. Probably one of the biggest, I think one of the biggest school systems in the United States. I mean, we have over 40,000 students. So I'm part of the system. So don't think that, hey, Brian is all for anarchy and just letting things go. No, I'll get into what I think happens and where government is needed. But I just, I want to talk about American exceptionalism, how blessed we are to kind of be where we are, and how we don't have to let it go yet. I mean, because I, I think we have to be very careful, and that's why I challenge you. And if you don't like what you're hearing from me, don't just write me a, 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 an email from the gut without any facts. I want you to go read this book. Go read Free to Choose and challenge yourself to see, hey, maybe I haven't realized. Because, you know, one of my biggest things, and I'm kind of going on a sidebar even from the outline I wrote, one of my biggest things that I've been troubled with, and I've talked to it where I found common ground with some of my friends who are much more, I'll just go ahead and say it, liberal than I am, is that we talk about, and we've had a lot of common ground, is that we talk about the cronyism in corporations. How, how it just seems like 
you know, if you go watch Food Incorporated or any of those documentaries like that, it does seem like the corporations have figured out how to game the political system for their own good, where it's not really a free market anymore because there's cronyism involved with it. Well, as I'm reading the, you know, this is something that's been kind of going on in my brain, and then I read this Milton Friedman book, I start realizing that I'm not mad at the market that these corporations have, have, you know, gotten involved and figured out how to game the system. I'm mad that we've created a system that allows this, where it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or Democrat to get in office, it doesn't change the results whatsoever because the corporation has already hired both sides, you know, and you can look at who they've got on their board of directors and everything, and you see how that political game is played. What we ought to be more upset with is that we let the government get to the point that it can now be part of the problem with these mega corporations and that create this cronyism. And that's why I will tell you, and, you know, and I'm going to move on to how too much government pulls us away from our roots and foundation and actually give you some more excerpts on that. And um, let, me, let me find, I've got, lost my place because I went on that little sidebar there. Bo, do you want to add anything while I'm sitting here flipping through my pages? No, no, I'm, uh, I'm right on board with you. I'm kind of anxious to see where this goes. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm curious to see what type of feedback we get from this too. So f please feel free to leave us a comment or thoughts. And you know, this is the whole thing. You know, I just talked about how the, the road to hell is going to be paved with good intentions. And I think part of it is, is and he even talks about it in, in the introduction, is that Milton Friedman says, ironically, the very success of, of economic and political freedom reduced its appeal to later thinkers. Meaning that when you're blessed with, you know, a good economy, um, where food's on the table without much trouble, where unemployment's not, you know, where people aren't sitting in soup lines and stuff, I think you start, the, the wrongs of the world seem much bigger than they, than they have been maybe in the past. Because if you've got your, your basics covered, your food, shelter, and health, you know, covered on, for, for you and your family, now you can start focusing on some of these other wrongs of the world. And when you start focusing on the kind of the warts of our system, and you say, well, you know, what we need to do, instead of just having all this freedom, is that we need, they were attracted, you know, a lot of people have been attracted by the good that a stronger government could achieve. You know, we can go add more. If, if, the only, if only the government power was in the right hands, you know, we could, we could really do some good for the, the public. And I think we see that, you know, it's funny, like I said, this book was written in the 70s and 80s. And you see a lot of that stuff today is that the view that, and I'm going to read a little bit from the book here, it says, the view that government's role is to serve as an umpire to prevent individuals from coercing one another was replaced by the view that government's role is to serve as a parent charged with the duty of coercing some to aid others. And that's where, you remember the government, and I'm going to get into what the book talks about, What believe me, I'm not an anarchist, but I do think it is very interesting to see that all the government's supposed to do to a degree is umpire to make sure that we don't step upon each other and that your rights aren't infringed upon. Instead, we've kind of slowly leaked into, by our own success, because we have food and sheltered in the past covered, we've kind of leaked over to the fact that, say, to the parent role of the government should do more with trying to make everybody charitable and do things. And it goes on, it says, these views have dominated the developments in the United States during the past half century. They have led to a growth in government at all levels, as well as a transfer of power from local government and local control to central government and central control. The government has increased 
increasingly undertaken the task of taking from some to give to others in the name of security and equality. One government policy after another has been set up to regulate our pursuits of industry and improvement, standing Jefferson's thoughts on its head. These developments have been produced by good intentions with a major assist from self-interest. Even the strongest supporters of the welfare and paternal state agree that the results have been disappointing. And remember, this was written back in the 70s and 80s. I, I'm, I'm just... And then he goes on, the experience of recent, of recent years. Remember, this is 30 years ago. Slowing growth and declining productivity raises doubt whether private ingenuity can continue to overcome the deadening effects of government control if we continue to grant ever more power to government to authorize a new class of civil servants to spend ever larger fractions of our income supposedly on our behalf sooner or later and perhaps sooner than many of us expect an even, even bigger government would destroy both the prosperity that we owe to the free market and the human freedom proclaimed so eloquently in the Declaration of Independence. 30 years ago, this, these sentences were written. What I find interesting is the experience of recent years slowing growth and declining productivity raises a doubt whether private ingenuity can continue to overcome the deadening effects of government control. If only Milton Friedman, when he originally wrote this, remember what happened after this? Technology revolution. I mean, this is before the Internet, guys. This is before... We had, you know, all the incredible things that we have now. So a lot of you, and, and what I'm, the point I'm trying to make with this is, is a lot of us right now are feeling kind of ho-hum bad because we're in a cruddy economy. And, and it stinks when you have people like me who's an entrepreneur, started several ventures, some have hit, some have not hit, and, you know, and had enough success to where I'm usually an optimist. And I guarantee you there's a lot of you out there with all this uncertainty are feeling the same way. You're doers as well. And you're wondering, how are we going to get ourselves out of it? Don't give up, because this was written back in the 70s and 80s. And he's wondering, is there enough ingenuity out there? Is there enough innovation to get us the next thing? had no idea we were about to have some of the best periods of our life because of this personal computer and Internet. Who knows what's sitting out there for us? I, I, when I read sentences like that and I apply it to where we are in history, and don't tell me we're not going to continue to innovate. It might not be here in America, but somebody is going to figure out where the innovation is, and we're going to be doing things that we didn't even think about. I, you know, I, I went on this Disney cruise, and I will tell you, by the end of the cruise, because when you're on the Disney cruise, you're on international water. And this is, you know, part of being on the international water is it texts you, hey, if you want to use our data plan, it's like 1995 a megabyte or something. And so I'm like, well, heck, I'm not going to. I'm not going to pay $19.95 for a megabyte or whatever. I'll just cut this phone off. Well, by day four, practically shaking because I'm going through withdrawal from being able to use my cell phone and text and get emails and, and see what's going on out there in the world. One of my friends who was on the trip, the husband that was with the other couple, says, hey, what would you do before the cell phone if you're, like, if you're going through this much withdrawal? And I said, I didn't know any better. That's kind of where we are, guys is that there's going to be something that comes out in the next 10 years that we're going to go into wonder how we made it through life without it. Bo, I pick on you all the time when um, I'm trying to think of what I picked on you most. Oh, the Flowbee. You didn't know what the Flowbee <laughs> was. And we went and looked up the, the Flowbee on YouTube so that you, you, know, you could see what the Flowbee was. That was the thing of my generation is that, you know, in dark economic times, self-cut your hair with your vacuum cleaner. That seemed completely reasonable at the time. I don't know why you, th you think that's funny now. That's completely reasonable. But this is the things that 
it is amazing how much things change, but also how much things stay the same. Um, okay, Bo, do you want to have anything? Because I want to give a little bit of insight on where government is needed so that people don't think I'm an anarchist and I'm just telling you, go do what you want to, you know, free markets all the way. No, I mean, you know, I'm going to give the other side of the, the discussion in, in a second too. No, that was, I was going to ask my question. So, so what, is, uh, what is the government's role? Okay, well, great lead in. Let me flip. You're supposed to take a little bit more time <laughs> so I could actually get to the page. But the role of government, and this gets into when you get into the, some of the chapters, it, it talks about really, and, it, and what's funny is I thought, well, it's not really funny. It's just that it ties into how powerful wealth of nations was to Milton Friedman and his thought. Now, one of the things, I went and printed out the, the biography for Milton Friedman, and a lot of people... This is something you need to know about Milton Friedman, too, because a lot of you guys are just going to think he's blindly a, a free market guy, and he's always felt this way. And sometimes if you believe something, it's almost like your religion, and, and you're blinded by the other things that you can, you know, the, the, the other views of thought. Well, I, this is the thing where I think that I'm more impressed with Milton Friedman. He actually was a, a, a Keynesian economist. He believed in the power of government when he was in his early career, he, he, was, he was not this free market system guy. He was actually on the other side of the coin. And, I, and while that, I think, plays so hard with me is that, you know, here I am, a fee-only financial planner. We don't do commissions, but I have worked on the, the commission side. The first four years that I was doing this, I was selling products. And I feel like that, that ability from me working on the commission side to now working on the other side gives me more credibility because I understand what the commission guys having to go through, what's what mindset they have, and and I think when I when I hear Milton Friedman, who's who believed in the, the if you know if you need more growth, have the government spend more, and then you realize, wait a minute, that doesn't exactly work every time. There, there's something to that that they flipped over to a free market gives him even more power to me because that means he looked at both sides of the discussion, the argument, before he just came to this conclusion. So a little sidebar on Milton Friedman, but I think it's very powerful to kind of know that about him. But he talks about the role of government, and he was so impressed with what Adam Smith wrote in Wealth of Nations that he actually put the excerpt right there in the book. It says, according to the system, this is from Adam Smith. This is actually from Wealth of Nations. According to the system of natural liberty, the sovereign, now whenever Adam Smith uses sovereign, he's talking about government, so you can replace sovereign with government. But according to the system of natural liberty, the sovereign has only three duties to attend to. Three duties of great importance indeed, but plain and intelligible to common understandings. First, the duty of protecting the society from the violence and invasion of other independent societies. Okay, number one. Want to keep us from being invaded? You know, make sure Red Dawn. Do you remember the movie Red Dawn? A little before my time. Okay. Well, anyway, that's Cold War. Red Dawn is you know these high school kids. You know, all of a sudden the Russians are parachuting into the backyard. So they, you got to you gotta count on the government to um, to protect you from invading countries. So they, they defense. Secondly, the duty of protecting as far as possible every member of the society from the injustice or oppression of every other member of it or the duty of establishing an exact administration of justice. So what that's saying is that, hey, you know, yeah, a robber can come up to you with a gun and say, give me your wallet or I'm going to take your life. Yes, yeah, that's, that's choice, but it's not free choice. There's coercion involved with it. So you've got to have a government that makes sure that justice 
is administered very equally. So that's why I think it's beautiful that that here in America, you know, the the hands of Lady Justice, you know, she has a blindfold on her face, and you know, and she's got the the counterbalance there. Why are you smiling? Is it, is it because I'm, I'm rocking and doing a, a demonstration on radio, which nobody's going to see? You do a very good Lady Justice. <laughs> the third, and thirdly, the duty of erecting and maintaining certain public works and certain public institutions, which it can never be for the interest of any individual or small number of individuals to erect and maintain because the profit could never repay the expense to any individual or small number of individuals, though it may be frequently do much more than repay it to a great society. Now that's the complicated one. Because what basically Adam Smith is talking about there is that, you know, like the highway system and other things, there's certain goods that you have to do that's impossible, the sewage system. I mean, who think about that if um if you didn't have the government creating a centralized way to to you know to in, in metropolitan areas, you literally have poop rolling in the streets. I mean, these are type of things that for the greater good the government needs to be get involved. Now, that's also a slippery slope that um, even Milton Friedman talks about because he says, you know, a lot of people can take that statement and say, well, see, this this justifies why the government has to get involved. But you have to take that statement, that item number three, and apply it back, loop it back to one and two to make sure that the unintended consequences of government don't take away items one and two. It really is a beautiful system. And he says, and that's why Milton Friedman writes, we should develop the practice of examining both the benefits and the costs of proposed government interventions and require a very clear balance of benefits over costs before adopting them. Experience shows that once government undertakes an activity, it is seldom terminated. The activity may not live up to expectations, but that is more likely to lead to its expansion, to its being granted a larger budget then to its curtailment or abolition. And if you think about that, I mean, y'all know me, I'm bitter on Social Security because I lost a father at age 55 and then we made a huge six-figure contribution to the federal government. You know, all, you know, that that's frustrating, you know, because that's exactly what I feel like has happened. We had a good intention with Social Security, but now it's not economically feasible in current form. And, and you, well, instead of adjusting or curtailing it, as as Milton Friedman puts, you know, we expand it, and it just gets bigger and bigger. And and that's a, so. Those are the three things. So if you ever have anybody who approaches you and goes, "Oh, you're just an anarchist. You don't want any laws or whatsoever," that's not true. Those three things pretty much sum up about every need you'd ever have for government. And and I think it's very interesting. I, there's so many things, guys. Believe me, I'm on chapter four. I hadn't even finished this book. But every page is just like, wow, 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 it's fireworks. I mean, it really is. And this is, I'm a guy who studies economics, the markets, you know, and I've always been a fan of Milton Friedman, but I'll be honest, this is the first Milton Friedman book I'm actually trying to read cover to cover instead of just reading excerpts. And it's amazing. And I tell you, it's more commonsensical than you probably realize. So I'd love for you to go check it out. Is this clock right on how long we've talked about this? Bo, Bo probably thinks it's funny because when I told him what we we're going to be doing on this podcast today, I said, well, we'll throw an email in there because I, I don't know if we have enough time to cover this. So I'm, I'm going to wrap up that. Please go check out this book. You know, Go check out our link at money-guy.com. If I've said something to upset you, write us a comment. But before you write the comment, go do some research on your own too. Let me challenge you to go read Free to Choose. I, I really think it's interesting how he's, he's made a case using history, history of 30 years ago, 
and you can even, I, I think you have the power as a reader now to where you can even go back in time and think about the 30 years that have happened since this book was written and think about how that plays out. It, it's truly amazing. It really is. As much as we've evolved and changed and added technology, we still have a lot of the problems facing our society that they had back in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, Bo, did you want to add anything before I jumped on Disney? I wanted to check and see all you guys, you know, especially my premium members. Now, one of the things I'm a, I haven't talked about it a ton. I think I've probably hinted at it a little bit, but Bo knows this is that I'm a, I'm a Disney fanatic. I, I didn't play. It kind of happened to me by accident. Is that uh, I used to make fun of my friends who had children, and they'd go to Disney more than once a year or once every three years. I was just like, why? How in the world? Why are you going to Disney so much? I don't understand. Because I grew up in a household where we went to Disney. I think I went when I, my parents took me when I was a baby, so I don't remember that trip. And then they took me again when I was probably in the seventh grade. And I had a great time on that trip, but I, know, I didn't get to go to Disney a lot. And Bo, um, but the, the, the dirty little secret about Bo, Bo comes from a, a very humble beginning, like, much like myself, maybe even a little humbler. And, and the, Bo's never been to Disney World. So, so I've, I've made some, some challenges to him that if we reach some goals... I'm going to hopefully be taking him down there to, to show him the, the great love of, of Mickey Mouse sooner than later. But I, I, we do go to Disney quite a bit. And I took my, my oldest daughter when she was three and a half for the first time. And now you have to know she's seven. So this, is, this love affair has been going on close to four years. And it was just incredible to me. Because what I thought was just amazing is that, like I told you, I got to go down there when I was in the seventh grade. And I've lost my father. You know, my father's passed away back... Um, it's going to be 10 years this December. And what was amazing to me is on the streets of Disney, like over there by um, Fantasyland where you have Cinder, I mean Snow White, um, you, you have Peter Pan and rides like that. I can, I, as soon as I walked into the park on the, in the Fantasyland area, I've got almost kind of a, a wash over me of a flashback of my own father walking with me there. I mean, it really was an amazing thing because the streets are the same. The rides look very similar. They've added new rides, so don't think, don't think you're going back and it's just a modified fare. It's nothing like that. But just the, the, the nostalgia of being there with my family, and now here I am kind of come full circle with my own daughter at the time, was just amazing to me. And it really was magical to see her excitement when she got to be around Cinderella and some of the other princesses. We've kind of made being how my personality is, and you have to know being the way I am, functional OCD, is that I had to find a woman to, to, to you know, marry me and bear children with that was probably just as functional OCD as I am. So we plan these things to the T. I mean, we have uh, park schedules. We have hourly schedules. They are events. These are not relaxing trips when we go to Disney World. So what the challenge I was going to make to you guys was that if you, uh, you know, if I can get at least 20 of my premium subscribers to tell me, hey, Brian, if you, you know, I'd love for you to add a section to the pot, to the, the premium section, which gives you, you know, details on the research you've come up with on um, the Disney things, we'll put it up there. I don't want to waste your time, though, if nobody's interested. I don't want to waste Bo's time of putting it up there. So I'm going to put that challenge out there to you guys. If you want to see these itineraries and our travel schedules, and so you can use it for your own benefit. And that's, that's the purpose. Use it as a tool for yourself to kind of know, you know, how to hit the parks and which, um, I, I think it's just, there's a lot of value there. And I can even tell you the books that we use and, and apps and other publications we use is a, a, just an incredible resource if you go hit and do Disney World effectively and very efficiently. 
Uh, the other thing is I'll tell you, we did the cruise. I've done, I'll, in the past, I've done Royal Caribbean cruises. I've done Carnival cruises. This is my first Disney cruise. My wife and I disagree a little bit on this. She thinks even if you don't have kids, you'd have a great time on a Disney cruise. I think it's it's ideal for people who have children. Um, it's it's one of those things where it is the best cruise experience I've had, but we have two children. So it, it is incredible. Um, they, they really tell you you can you know use their babysitting service and other things. Truthfully, you don't get to use that a lot because you're so busy that there's no time to drop the kids off so you can still have adult time. So, But I, I thought it was great that they have those resources. The shows after dinner are top-notch. Um, the food was okay. Uh, maybe I'm a food snob, um, but I haven't ever been impressed with any cruise ship food, to be honest with you. So it, it, just know that the food is going to be okay to good. Um, but it's not going to be the best thing you've ever had. Now, the exception, I will tell you, if you do any of the cruise, the Disney cruises, definitely pay the $15 extra a person and do the adult-only dinner. Um, use the child care for that because they do have, a, on both ships, they have an adult-only dinner that is incredible. I will tell you, I don't know um, if the chef is that much better or just the cuts of meat are that much better, but the food was definitely superior at the adult-only dinner versus um, what you get in the other restaurants. Uh, Disney World, we stayed at the Animal Kingdom Lodge. First time we stayed out there, we've, we've done in the past. Um, I'm, tr I'm trying to think of all the different resorts. We've stayed at the Beach Club. We've stayed at Port Orleans. We've stayed at, oh, I know I'm, I'm leaving off three or four, but we've stayed at about everywhere, almost, you know, in different geographic locations around the park. Um, Animal Kingdom is beautiful, but it is really far away from everything. So you have to know whenever you go to Animal Kingdom to stay, Go have beautiful. We had a savanna view, so we'd wake up in the morning, have giraffes, zebras, and things like that outside our window. I sent a few. Did I send you some pictures, Bo? Yeah, I sent I sent Bo some. I've got some videos I haven't shared with you. It's kind of cool to to have giraffes outside your window, but it was one of those things where I would have to really think long and hard about staying at the Animal Kingdom again. Not because of how we were treated or the rooms or anything like that. It was just the fact that it's twenty to twenty five minutes away from everything except for Animal Kingdom which is probably my least favorite park. So you could just count on whenever you left Magic Kingdom or Epcot, you had a, probably a 30 to 40 minute drive to get back to the room. And that, that's, if you've been walking for a long day, that's a lot of time. I did have one thing that I was disappointed. This is my first huge disappointment with Disney. I feel like since I have the power of the broadcast of this podcast, I might as well go ahead and use it. It's kind of my bully pulpit is that um, I was a little disappointed is that I, something really grossed me out. Did I tell you? I don't know if I've told you about this yet, Bo. Is that I, in the middle of the night, I'll tell you, I drink, I, I get up at least once a night. And it's usually because I either have to go to the restroom or I have a really dry throat. I don't know if it's how I breathe, but I get really dry throat. So I get up in the middle of the night. And typically I have at my house, you know, I have a refrigerator that has a filter. So it's no big deal. I always have a glass of water in my bathroom at home. But here on vacation, the bottles of water were, you know, like two fifty, three bucks for a bottle. So tight wide brine. I didn't buy a bottle of water for my room at night, you know, and, and so I need to drink a water in the middle of the night. So in the dark, uh, you know, they have glasses right up there by the sink. I flip over a glass in the middle of the night, fill it full of sink water and drink. Okay, get my quench, my thirst, go back to bed. The next morning, I'm in the shower, my wife comes in and goes, Did you drink out of this glass last night? I said, Yeah. She goes, What's up? She goes, there's cigarette ashes all at the bottom of this glass that you drank out of. So I was like, no. So I got out, sure enough, this glass that I tipped over in the pitch dark, filled full of water, and drank 
out of was covered in cigarette ashes at the bottom. So, and, and I've, there's been all kind of I-team investigations and all these things I watch, you know, during, on the local news shows where they talk about don't ever use the, the, the glasses in hotels, but it, I couldn't help myself. I had to drink out of it. So I was just, I almost got, I got, I got kind of nauseous. I know that sounds silly, but I got sick to my stomach thinking that I drank cigarette ashes the night before from some random person who smoked in a non-smoking resort, but they obviously went on their balcony, used their cup, and then the cleaning lady or cleaning man didn't clean it up. So I was pretty upset. So I went to the front desk and said, hey, you guys, here's this glass. I drank out of this last night. I'm revolted by it. This is disgusting. Y'all, you know, if you're not going to clean the glasses, give me some throwaway glasses, some disposable glasses so I can do this. So they're like, okay, we'll take care of it. You know, and they got my room number and my information said it was going to be taken care of. So I was like, okay, that's cool. It's going to be taken care of. The next day. Now, I'll tell you, I paid the $3 for the bottle of water the next night. So I didn't drink out of these glasses ever again. But my wife the next day goes, Brian, did you see this? And I said, what? She goes, there's lipstick all over this glass over here. So even after you complained, the very next day, they still hadn't gone back and cleaned. I looked at them, so they didn't clean any of those glasses. And there was no, they didn't address it. I mean, I didn't get anything where, you know, I would think being that, you know, a, a customer comes to you and they're obviously revolted by it, that there'd be some type of follow-up, a call and say, Mr. Preston, is everything okay now? Uh, you know, or give me a thank you note or something, you know, a, a message from, you know, maybe the manager, nothing. And I, I'm just disappointed. That's not the Disney way to kind of let something that bad happen and then not have some type of follow-up. You know, it, it just really troubled me. You know, it, it would have been nice if there would have been somebody touching base. So if anybody, if I, by some chance, and I'm always amazed at how this podcast can reach a lot of people, I would ask somebody in the Disney organization to please address that because that's very concerning that something like because i think that's gross drinking cigarette ashes is probably one of the worst things i don't you don't see that on fear factor when that show used to be around i mean that's just foul so that's the biggest thing other than that i love disney and i'm not bold enough to say i'm so disgusted by this transaction that i'm never going back to disney because i'd be shooting myself in the foot and i'd be lying because we'll probably be back you know sooner than later but it is one of those things i was strongly strongly disappointed and i would just encourage if anybody stays on resort don't drink out of the glasses and if disney if you're not going to clean them let's 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 at least put disposable things so if you're interested in more information you know shoot us a you know shoot me some emails money brian at money-guy.com and if we get enough of you that are interested we will put the 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 pages out there to you know for the premium section but but thanks so much guys for listening i hope um that this American exceptionalism, you know, I've given you enough history as well as challenged you to go consider reading this Milton Friedman book, that it can benefit you in this marketplace. Because it's not going to tell you buy and sell signals and, and, and that type of stuff, but it's going to let you be able to look at the economy, recognize where things might be, you know, a little short, to see a bubble before everybody else realizes it's a bubble. And that's how you're going to benefit. That's how you're going to be able to help your back pocket and your investments because you're going to recognize things before others do because you have a greater understanding of how economics works. So, Bo, do you want to add anything else before we shut this thing down? No, I think it's good. Go out and get the book. Well, guys, thanks so much. I'm your host, Brian Preston. We'll talk to you in about two weeks. Bye. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. 
Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. 